This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 204, Transformation. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Our life in Jesus is about changing from one thing into another, from sinner to saint, from rebellious to obedient. It's not easy, and it doesn't always work, but when it does, it's a wonder to behold. This week, we will discuss the blessings of God's fiery ordeals, the ancients' efforts to cheat death and whether that would be a good thing, the diet that will save your soul as opposed to the diet that will just delay the inevitable, and why we get bad results when we tweak God's recipes. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Have you ever woken up one morning and said, you know, I would really like to be set on fire today, just to see what happens? Oh, Hal, you mean set on fire by the Spirit, you say. I think that all the time. No, I say. I mean set on fire. Literal fire. Well, then no, Hal. I don't guess I ever have had that thought, you're saying now. And that's perfectly reasonable. I'm right there with you. But what if God were the one setting the fire? And what if he promised you it was for your own good? That you would come out the other end better and stronger than you were before? I guess that's the moment when we find out exactly what we're made of, whether we truly are walking by faith instead of by sight. That's exactly the point of the image of the refining fire, and it permeates the scriptures. Proverbs 17.3 reads, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Psalm 66.10 reads, For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. This is especially seen in God's treatment of rebellious Israel in the Old Testament. The furnace of affliction is a term used in Isaiah 48.10 to describe the destruction of the northern tribes of Israel as well as the horrors Judah would face shortly. And then once the nation, or what was left of it, had come through the fire, what awaited them on the other end? You guessed it, another fire. Zechariah 13.9 and Malachi 3.3 describe yet further rebellion on the part of the chastened remnant and yet more trials that lay ahead. The point was not a simple matter of punishment for crimes committed. If that were the point, God would be chastening individuals instead of cultures, and on an ongoing basis, not every few centuries or so. After all, he is no respecter of persons, according to Acts 10.34 and many other passages. How could he punish Jeremiah's generation, for instance, and merely warn Isaiah's generation? No, the refining fire is much bigger than that. It is a picture of the path we all take through life as individuals, as families, as churches, as cultures, as all of the above. Life brings hardships every single day. The way we deal with them defines our character. They bring out the best or the worst in us. They cause us to grow or to stumble. Most of all, they give us a chance to retreat from God or retreat into God. The circumstances are His. The choices are ours. As Christians, we should be especially aware of this principle. With the entirety of God's plan for humankind laid out for us, we can see God's refining fire working through the ages. Adam and Eve are given paradise and temptation to go along with it. They failed the test, and then they're left to deal with the consequences. Humanity was wiped from the face of the earth in Noah's day. The few souls left behind got to decide, along with their descendants, what they would make of their amazing, by the grace of God, second chance. The nation of Israel was a constant case study. The generation lost in the wilderness— the failures of the times of the judges, all building to a head in the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, and then again in the days of the New Testament church when the new temple was destroyed again. 
All of this should remind us of the refining process God is working in each of us. It's not a punishment per se. It's a test, a series of tests. He sends us through the fire, not to watch us squirm, but rather to see what we are made of. Pardon the expression. Even after we choose to come to Jesus, far too much of the world remains in us. It needs to be burned away one way or the other. Titus 2.14 says Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We give ourselves a break when we think baptism crowns Jesus' work in our lives. Yes, we are redeemed, but we are not yet pure. We would not cut a slab of gold ore out of the mountain and call it a day, content with just seeing the value buried deep within. We would destroy everything we didn't want so we could celebrate what remained. That's what Jesus is doing in us every day. It's a painful process, as the metaphor would indicate. And pardon me for being indelicate, but some of us don't make it. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 3.13 about the fire that will come to the work that we have tried to do in others. Sometimes the result is glorious, and sometimes it isn't. All we can do is continue to purify our souls through obedience, as we read in 1 Peter 1.22. Encourage that work in others whom we meet, and trust that a merciful God will see what's left in the end, which will still be pretty messy, and consider it worthy of the glorious place in his house that he's prepared. This is what I've been reading. Virtually every culture in human history has valued gold. But gold is hard to come by. That's one of the reasons it's valuable. Finding it in the natural world is arduous under the best of circumstances, and it's never anything close to a guarantee. You could take it from someone else, but that's chancy too. People tend to defend their treasure with their life. You could trade for it. In fact, that's the whole reason gold was turned into currency, to facilitate trade. But to get the gold, you have to give up something that the other party thinks is more valuable than the gold. It's tough to get ahead that way. But what if you could create it? For thousands of years, alchemists have tried to do that, transform cheaper materials such as lead into gold. Today, alchemy is seen as pseudoscience. But until fairly recently, reputable scientists from around the world took it very seriously. In the geographer's library, Novelist John Fassman plays with the idea of alchemy to great effect. The story goes, an Arab scholar spent years and years in the 13th century compiling bits and pieces of a device that would alter the foundation of reality. For him, it was not a matter of merely getting rich. Alchemy was a trick to extend physical life almost indefinitely. Over the centuries, the various pieces of the process had been scattered, and as you would expect, people in the know had chased down clues preserved the stories, committed theft and murder, basically whatever they needed to do to keep hope alive. After all, what wouldn't you do to live forever? I have a couple of responses to the basic theme of the book, and neither of them is likely to take you by surprise. For one, I'm not all that thrilled at the prospect of extending my life for a few extra centuries. We sometimes sing, I'd like to stay here longer than man's allotted days, and watch the fleeting changes of life's uneven ways. And I can sing those words with a perfectly clear conscience. If the last decade or two is any indication, there are some wild and woolly things coming right around the corner. If only for the sake of morbid curiosity, I would like to see how it all plays out. All the same, it's kind of like watching pro wrestling, or a demolition derby. Watching from a safe distance is one thing. Being in the middle of the arena is quite another. 
and there are no safe seats in Satan's world. Bad people do bad things every day. You can go offline and miss a lot of it. You can keep your door closed and miss even more. But you have to go out sometime. And even if you manage to dodge most of the bad guys out there, you can't avoid the consequences of their actions, which include but are not limited to high insurance premiums, poor service at your favorite restaurant, trash on the highway, road rage, now on and on we could go. And that's just the light stuff. As you know all too well, it gets much, much worse. I'm all for holding out hope that things will improve, and I'm certainly all for doing our part to help them improve. But the preacher said long ago in Ecclesiastes 1.15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And we've spent the last three millennia proving him right. I would rather do my time here on earth, make the best of it while I'm here, and then move on to the rest that waits for the people of God, according to Hebrews 4.9. And that brings up the second point. Why is it that people of the world are willing to do everything and more besides to extend their worldly life? And people of the Spirit are often extremely unmotivated to extend their spiritual lives. After all, the life we look forward to does not have the pain, suffering, and indignity that is hardwired into life here on earth. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18-21 that God's spiritual creation eagerly anticipates being liberated from bondage here on earth and receiving true freedom in the life to come. But do we really believe that? Because the guy I see in the mirror doesn't always act like he believes that. He clings to the things of this life sometimes, terrified of losing some special part of it that will not survive the grave anyway. And when it seems like it might have to be one or the other, he tries to enter into some sort of negotiation with God in the matter. I like to think I'm winning more of those battles than I'm losing these days. But sometimes I'm not so sure. How are you doing with this battle? Are you clinging with all your strength to life here on earth? Or are you clinging with all your strength to heaven? Because you can't do both. Common sense tells you that. More than that, Jesus tells you that in Luke 16, 13. It's one master or the other. I'm not suggesting you have to deliberately sacrifice your health, your hobbies, your friendships, or whatever else you hold dear in this life if you want to pursue heaven. But Jesus said in Luke 9.24 that you must lose your life if you are truly to save it. Whatever that may mean practically in your life, surely it doesn't mean keep whatever you really, really like and trust that God will be okay with it. This is what I've been hearing. Our English word diet comes from the French word diete, and I hope I'm pronouncing that sort of kind of right, meaning the food you eat on a particular day. Well, that makes sense. But if you dig deeper, you find the French word is derived from the Latin, and that's actually taken from the Greek word dieta, which means way of life. We hear diet used that way frequently in English as well, especially when someone has a book to sell. But more often than not, it seems to me, a diet is a temporary pattern of behavior that in fact interrupts your regular way of life. If you're like most Americans, you can shed some pounds by just cutting out desserts. But if you go back to your old ways afterward, the missing weight will turn up again. The objective should not be to alter your habits temporarily so you can achieve an arbitrary short-term goal. You should want a manner of life that will put you where you want to be for the long haul and then help you stay there. We just finished a terrific weekend of Bible study with my buddy B.J. Sipe here at Lakewoods Drive. The theme was Revive Us Again. I love the idea of revival. 
making a special effort to commit ourselves to the Lord, to one another, and to the work set before us. That's a wonderful thing, and sometimes a needful thing. But it comes with some problems. Revival, as we usually think of it, is a short-term objective. A person's heart stops beating. The paramedics administer CPR. The person's heart starts back up again. He has been revived. That's a good thing, obviously. But the real problem has not been solved. The real problem hasn't even been addressed. Hearts don't just stop beating for no reason. Something is wrong on the inside. And five minutes of CPR hasn't done anything to change that. If the heart attack victim gets up, thanks to the paramedics, and goes right back to eating fried chicken and Oreos on the couch all day, he'll wind up in the same place again before long. The trick is to find a real solution to the underlying problem. Or better yet, find a way to avoid the need for revival in the first place. To a certain extent, the situational approach to revival is helpful, and even needful. I'm not excusing months and months of indifference, but it happens. And if we can declare ourselves innocent of the months and months charge, how about days and days? Or hours and hours? Exactly how long is it permissible to ignore our spiritual responsibilities? We all need a little bit of revival from time to time, and perhaps more than a little bit. When that time comes for you, by all means, bring on the short-term solutions. And by the way, I recommend my friend BJ in that regard. But embrace the short-term solutions for what they are. Do not pretend they are something else. The theme of our event, taken from the old-time hymn of the same name, says volumes, Revive Us Again, implies we needed revival in the past. It's not much of a reach to assume we will need revival at some point in the future also, no matter how good a preacher B.J. Sype is. A swig of orange juice will do wonders for a diabetic on the verge of collapse. But a steady diet of orange juice will kill him, literally. Something more substantial is needed for day-to-day, year-to-year maintenance. I say all that to say this. Spiritual growth is more than just feeling close to God and your brethren in the moment. It requires real sustenance, real spiritual nutrition. You don't need a pick-me-up. You need a spiritual diet. Coming to Jesus is not about transforming you from a grumpy person into a happy person, or from a depressed person into an encouraged person. It's about transforming you from a fundamentally unhealthy soul to a fundamentally healthy soul. And as is the case with physical treatment, Tending to the big-picture issues tends very strongly to produce the short-term feelings of satisfaction and contentment that you're looking for anyway. So it's a win-win. My prayer for Lakewood's Drive this week and for the foreseeable future is that we take the good feelings we enjoyed over this weekend and use them to set reasonable but challenging goals for ourselves. Feeling good today is wonderful, but I would rather feel wonderful every hour of every day. Wouldn't you? This is what I've been playing. A game called Alchemists took the board gaming world by storm right about the time we were getting into the hobby. At the time, Tracy and I had our eyes on literally dozens of games, and this one seemed a bit out of our wheelhouse, so we passed. Yes, sometimes we will deliberately avoid buying a board game. Anyway, we were in one of our friendly local game stores a few months ago, and Kylie saw a copy of Alchemists for the first time. She was fascinated. And it's not like Alchemists became a worse game over the last seven years. So we grabbed a copy, and all three of us are glad we did. In Alchemists, you play the part of medieval scientists working with ingredients such as mushrooms, scorpions, flowers, 
and various other natural ingredients in pursuit of the secret combination to all things wonderful. Every ingredient will interact with every other ingredient in a special way. And there's no way of knowing the results without running one experiment after another. Trouble is, some of the combinations are not so great. In fact, they can't even be poisonous. So you can use yourself as a test subject, or maybe you would rather put your assistant at risk instead. But in any case, until you come up with the right formulas, you're just guessing and hoping you don't die. Let's see what happens has been the motto of scientists for centuries. And, well, that didn't work, has often been what was said next. Thankfully, scientists have a habit of taking notes. That lets one generation of researchers learn from the previous generation's mistakes without having to make them themselves. In theory, that should lead to fewer mistakes and greater, more reliable successes. And by and large, it works. After all, it's in everyone's interests that our body of knowledge increase. Spiritual research doesn't seem to go so smoothly for some reason. Every generation seems to think they can put an extra ingredient in the mix without causing any complications. Take marriage, for instance. Add a man and a woman, and you get a family according to Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. And Jesus appeals to the very first marriage as evidence for his philosophy. Of course, you have to mind the pot. Even proper recipes can go bad if carried out improperly. Paul gives us guidance in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, regarding how the roles of husband and wife should be carried out. And nobody really questions whether this plan will work. We have ample historical evidence, not to mention the word of our Lord Jesus on the matter. But every generation wants to prove themselves right and Jesus wrong. Toss in some homosexuality. Add a little porn. If it doesn't work, no big deal. Just toss it in the trash and try again. The important thing is to do what you want to do over and over again until you get the results you want. Well, sometimes our neighbors wind up with something that works for them that in fact they might prefer to a biblical marriage, including scrapping the idea of marriage entirely. But alternative formulas in the things of God are toxic, no matter how tasty and satisfying you may find them in the moment. And the very idea that what I want for myself is part of the process is evidence that selfishness has found its way into the pot, and that will ruin things quicker than anything. It's in our nature to tweak the recipe a bit to suit modern tastes. And as long as we don't alter God's basic chemistry, that's fine. But reinventing God's wheel is much worse than a waste of time. It's an act of rebellion, and it must be checked immediately. It's like God warning Cain to keep the door closed to sin. Refusing to do so will result in your destruction. Cain didn't listen, and no one should be surprised at the results. And if you refuse to accept the consequences of your choices, if you insist that drinking toadstool and scorpion soup won't kill you like it did your buddy, you are setting yourself up for heartache, and maybe worse. Keep things simple. Read God's recipes. Follow them to the letter. And enjoy the transformation that comes by building faith in God through His Word. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.